Welcome to the Emerging Women Podcast, where we hear from brilliant women leaders creating big change in the world. I'm Chantal Purat, your host, and my guest is advocate and social entrepreneur Jennifer Brown. Jennifer grew up in a conservative culture and in college took a women's studies class that completely flipped the script for her. She became active in social justice, driven by a desire to make positive change. While getting her master's in operatic singing, she literally lost her voice. She realized she was still meant to use her voice, just not as a singer, but on behalf of others, working to help them find their own. She got a master's in change management and has recently written the book, Inclusion, Diversity, the New Workplace, and the Will to Change. Today, we're talking about the inevitability of change, the prices people pay for being different, and how workplaces of the future can address humanitarian and social equality issues as we move through these turbulent times. Let's dig into this fascinating and necessary conversation, the power of inclusion, with diversity and inclusion expert, Jennifer Brown. Hello and welcome, Jennifer Brown. How are you? Hey, Chantal. I'm great. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be talking about inclusion with you. You are the expert. Hmm. <laughs> and it's a big topic. Is, it's a big topic, <laughs> and the timing is ripe. And mm-hmm. as much as we don't, you know, like to accept the fact that the timing is right, I think we've got a few <laughs> more days of hope. Maybe something yep. uh, somebody's tricked us, but. But yes, it's very ripe with the change in the Oval Office. So mm. I'm excited to hear more about how um, inclusion is not only affecting our corporate landscape and creating new paradigms for that, but also in our popular culture. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Lots to say on all of that. <laughs> okay. Well, your book is Inclusion, Diversity, the New Workplace, and the Will to Change. And I really want to talk about change because you spent a lot of time on the science of change and sort of like what it takes to change. And um, But first, I thought we'd just launch in with hearing your background and your personal story because it really, you know, I know your story and I feel like the fact that you're doing this work, given your personal story, is super relevant for me. So maybe you could just give us... Mm-hmm. Um, both personal and professional, uh, more of an idea of who you are. Mm-hmm. I'd love to do that. Absolutely. Um, and it's been, it's unfolded in an unexpected way, uh, as you are alluding to. So the bones of my story really are that um, I grew up in a pretty conservative family, religious family, um, but I, I had my first women's studies class in college, and it just sort of turned my world upside down uh, when I started to be equipped with a different way to look at the world and my place in it as a woman. And uh, that led, didn't lead directly, but I, I ended up also coming out as um, a lesbian when I was 22, my last year in college. And being, again, kind of really open-minded to that possibility um, in my life and welcoming that. And um, sort of those two things set me on a path of what I'd call social justice. Um, I worked in nonprofits for a while in my 20s and was very much, very much an activist, very much somebody that uh, needed to be creating positive change in the world with what I was doing for a living. And that meant, you know, working for nonprofits and not making any money at all, but had an incredible, an incredible time in my 20s doing that kind of advocacy work. Um, on the, in a parallel universe, though, I was also a singer. And so I had this itch that I had to scratch and I had to say I had to move to New York and really dive into the world of music and trying to make my living as a performer. So I I came to New York in my late 20s and got my master's in opera and um, vocal performance. And the, the, the big low point, I guess, uh, in all of that era of my life was that in the course of operatic training, I injured myself, my voice, several times and had to get surgery. And 
um, literally lost my voice and had to rehab it and bring it back and find it again. And it was terrifying as somebody who's in the creative field, obviously, to lose the means to express yourself. And um, while I did reinvent myself into what I do now, um, just realizing your instrument would be kind of forever not able to do what you needed to do was, was a real, um, that was kind of a crux moment in my life. Yeah. Um, but, but the unintended gift of it was that I had lots of friends who transitioned from the theater world into the world of like corporate consulting, training, teaching adults, etc. And I kind of leaped into that world and was good at it and loved it and got a second master's degree in change management and ended up founding my own company and growing it over the last decade. And um, I say I was meant to use my voice, just not as a singer. Uh-huh. And um, it was just such a powerful realization that as an LGBT person, as a woman business owner, as somebody who had lost her voice in a literal sense and had to fight to get it back, my mission, my organizational mission now, my life's purpose is truly to use my voice on behalf of others and also to help them find their own. And that, that is a theme that is echoed throughout the book that I just wrote. And when you say you did advocacy work and you got into the world of social justice, what were your causes? Oh, I was, I, um, I worked in uh, youth empowerment, uh, environmental justice, um, community organizing, uh, community service for young people. I worked for an incredible organization called City Year. Uh, they started in Boston and now they're all over the country. And they were dedicated to um, enabling uh, kids from the ages of 17 to 23 to do a year of community service. Um, take out that year and, and do a gap year doing that and um, met incredible people that I still stay in touch with and it will always be a part of who I am. Um, so I, I, uh, that was primarily my work was in youth and community um, and now it kind of takes on a whole different resonance knowing what I know now, you know, 20, 25 yeah. years later. Yeah, so it's really interesting but I, I see it as kind of as the, the birth of my activism and I still very much consider myself an activist today. Yeah, hallelujah. Um, you also, you know, I've always considered you an activist, you know, at least very outspoken and involved in the LBGTQ, Q, AI, AI <laughs> community. Yes. And the fact that you're bringing that work into corporations specifically, I think, is just super cutting edge and awesome. Mm. Thank you. It, it's it's a journey, and journey for them, for sure, and they've probably never seen someone that looks like me, sounds like me, does what I do in the package I'm in, so I think all of that together is proving um, a very helpful mechanism for change, and I'm, I'm kind of riding it and seeing where it goes, because it's a, it's a total adventure. Um, every day is something new, and... <laughs> depressing and exciting at the same time. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and we'll talk more about that when we get into it. Now, we, this is a time of change and it's my personal feeling that the, it's, you know, this new change in our presidency is almost like the last, the last burst of flame of the patriarchy before the new paradigms completely, you know, reorg that and create something new, which ultimately will have more of a feminine influence. But, you know, the fact of the matter is whether or not it's the last breath, it's here for at least four years. And, you know, we are kind of in a shitstorm with regards to race and, you know, uh, half the country arguing for diversity and inclusion and how, you know, innovation increases, profits increase, you know, the buying power of our diverse populations. And then the other half, like, no, let's like wind the clock back to 1950 when things were good, when things were great. And so um, I'm wondering if you could just give us like, you know, a, a short, like, what do you see as the current state of affairs in terms of, you know, our path, our inevitable path, because that's how I feel, towards a more inclusive society? Mm-hmm. Oh, it's a huge question. It's such a good and important 
question to, to try to answer, um, you know, like Obama has on, on his rug in the Oval Office, the, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Yes. And in my darker moments, I remind myself of that. It's one of my favorite quotes. And I agree with you, the inevitability of change, um, to, you know, to echo the title of my book, you know, when you look at the fact that our country is going to be, um, you know, majority, minority, majority, you know, in the next decade or two, and Gen Y and millennials are already probably a minority, majority coming up the ranks. So change is upon us. You know, it is occurring. It is in the consumers that buy products. It's in the talent in every company and every workforce. So that is is inexorable. You know, that's not going to change um, unless someone who shall not be named, you know, ex- deports lots and lots of people and sort of radically changes the the makeup of our society. You know, it is what it is. So that's going to continue to continue to be a pressing challenge for companies and that's not going away. So if they want to stay competitive and innovative, they, they will continue. And I think they are continuing from where I sit to really double down on doing diversity and inclusion better. So that's exciting. Um, but the last throws of the, of the nostalgic way of looking at what the world used to be. And I agree that it's, it's, this may be the last breath of it, um, but it's certainly hitting us very strongly, and um, it's terrifying for a lot of people. And and I know, um, you know, employees are, which is where I specialize, are just terrified about: is the company going to stand up for me? Are my colleagues who I think they are, um, you know, am I safe at a very basic level? And I think we've all uh, been just really thrown off balance in in wondering. Uh, you know, what we thought change was here to stay, uh, and now we're sort of retrenching. I, I could argue that we weren't necessarily ready for, as a society, as a society, we weren't ready for a black president. Um, I, I could argue that that the foundation may not have been strong enough or it may not have been um, what we thought it was to enable that to be a lasting, like, new water, new water line you know, in our march towards progress. Um, so I think we are, we're feeling the effects of that. And, um, and it's important to remember that, you know, it's an important reminder for me as somebody who's trying to create change. There's the preaching to the choir and then there's sort of the outreach to people who still really don't understand that progress and the valuing of diversity is actually a really beautiful thing, a good thing, an important thing. Uh, it's not a dangerous thing. Um, to us, it actually you know rich, enrich and enriches our lives and makes us better at whatever we do. Um, but I think there's also some changes that aren't that aren't going away that aren't good for people, like the fact that you know jobs are getting uh, digitalized, um, artificial intelligence is taking over so many traditionally um, you know human roles, and. I, I don't see a lot of these dynamics changing when it comes to the workforce and it comes to what kinds of skill sets and education you need to be employed. So some of those things are, are they're sobering and they may not be our experience depending on what socioeconomic background you find yourself in. There's such a chasm between yourself and a lot of others in, in the way we make our living. But I think this election was such a such an education around who has opportunities, who doesn't have opportunities, um, and and really are are all of our society getting their needs met in the same way? And it was a real call out for me to think about: Am I being inclusive of of the entire conversation about diversity and all the all the feelings, you know, valid valid feelings around that topic, or am I kind of putting all of my energy towards people that, you know, get it mostly. And is that where I really need to be of service at this time? So yeah. those are, those are uh, big questions. We need to kind of go where the need is. And um, I don't know how that's going to shift my practice and my company and my work, but I'm very open to that in the new year. Yes. Now, just to stay on this theme of like, you know, the current state of things, because, you know, with media and pop culture and, you know, things can get really confusing, but it's nice to get real. And we've all heard a lot of these statistics in terms of, like, women, but there's also in terms of people of color and LBGTQ and all of that. But 
there is in, in your book, you talk about a tax for uh-huh. people of diverse backgrounds or what I call like people that fall into marginalized groups that, that those people actually, not only do they not have a lot of, and I'm saying we actually have as many opportunities as the old white guys, but there's, you know, in addition to lack of opportunity, we're actually paying. So can you uh-huh. talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. That re- that research is done by, that term is coined by a data scientist uh, named Vivian Ming. And I urge everyone to look her up if you can. And um, I'm going to have her as a guest on my, my podcast in the new year. But she quantified the difference between the um, the amount that a, a John versus a Jose, for example, same exact background coming into the game, you know, and at a relatively young age, and all of the hurdles that Jose needs to jump over, and all the extra effort and degrees and uh, accomplishments that Jose needs to have to literally match up with John when they are both being considered for opportunities. And she literally was able to, using big data, to quantify the different career trajectories of these two similarly qualified and bright uh, candidates as they sort of move through their professional careers. And the numbers she came up with are just are just staggering um, in terms of lost opportunity um, and extra education. And you know, how do you quantify the extra effort every single day that Jose has to expend uh, dealing with the fact that he is on the receiving end of of unconscious bias or conscious bias at every single point as you're trying to be successful? And um, to me, you know, she calls it the tax on being different and. Many of us in, like you say, marginalized communities, underrepresented communities, uh, lesser understood communities are paying that tax. And, you know, I hear it. I knew instinctively this was happening, right, because I knew from, you know, doing many, many focus groups of, of leaders as they were coming through the pipeline in corporate America saying, you know, I have to do extra work. I have to be extra perfect. I have to downplay my race or my gender or my sexual orientation, which I don't share with anyone. All of those things take a lot of our energy. And that energy is energy that I might say the white straight colleagues of ours aren't having to expend. So they can take that energy and put it towards, you know, those extra networking events or, you know, you know, getting, getting ahead and utilizing their mentors and playing the game. I think there's others of us that are just trying to stay in the game. And yeah. the game is not even made by us and we don't understand the rules of the game. So when you think about all of that, that really adds up. I mean, there's actually a monetary cost to navigating that, and and it just it leads to exhaustion, it leads to burnout, it leads to perfectionism, which is never enough. Um, I think it's led, frankly, to the fact that we don't see more women and people of color getting through that kind of critical moment before executive leadership. So when we when we wring our hands and we say, well, there's not enough. Uh, senior women, there's not a lot of executives of color, I think they're they're spinning out of our pipeline because they are just exhausted and fed up and they don't see any prospects for improvement. Right. And the ones that are there, and we're going to talk about, you know, how to get those women that are falling out back and the others. But you you talk about a process, or I don't even know if it's a it's a habit um, called covering. When for the for the ones that are in these corporations and are working and have made their way and feel like they're in a pretty good position, tell us what that is. Yeah, that's one of my favorite concepts that's come out of the research recently. Uh, covering was coined by Kenji Yoshino, who's a constitutional law professor at NYU, and he's on. Uh, the networks all the time. Um, he is a gay Asian dad um, with two little ones, and um, he and Deloitte authored this research on covering in the workplace. And what it is, Chantal's, it is it is the downplaying of a known stigmatized identity. So the the distinction of it is that the sort of unlike maybe the days of bias that's in your face and I know we're not beyond this yet, but jokes and things that are clearly on sort of the wrong side of etiquette and, you know, and propriety covering is more subtle and we actually do it to ourselves because 
we sense, although we're not sure, that parts of our identity are not going to be accepted because we don't see anyone around us that's being celebrated, that's being promoted, uh, that is bringing their full selves to work, in, um, whether that's race, ethnicity, um, gender, sexual orientation. So we are covering stigmatized identities. So people may, you know, know I'm a woman, right? And that's not something that I can hide. However, I can minimize my needs that pertain to my being a woman, whether that's my goals for my family, whether that's my needs for balance, whether it's how I dress or wear my hair, whether that's the recreational activities that I do or don't do with the guys. Um, it's, it's that minimization of something that you know is negatively stereotyped. So it is an intentional distancing from our difference and what people, we know people are going to think about that difference. You know, the stories I tell, um, and they're in the research, and they're so powerful, like, uh, you know, women of color, black women in corporate America will tell me, you know, I, 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 when I started here, I had to kind of look up the chain and see if there were, A, if there were any black women at the executive leadership level, and how, for example, they wear their hair. Yeah. You know, what is, it, what is acceptable here? Can I wear my hair natural or not? So, so that's appearance based covering, that's a real decision, you know, that they make, and then that requires extra effort, and, you know, we talk about the tax, right? We start to kind of notice these things, and we, we make more adjustments than others make in order to be acceptable. Um, Affiliation-based covering is like when a dad won't take a, um, advantage of parental leave, even though it's on offer, because people who take full advantage of leave might be viewed as less committed to their career. Uh-huh. So that's sort of distancing yourself from an affiliation to a topic that's stigmatized. Um, you have um, advocacy-based covering, which is maybe when a gay man or a woman refrains from challenging um, an offensive joke or comment because they don't want to be viewed as overly strident um, right. as part of that community. So they don't want to advocate for their themselves, basically, because they're going to get punished for it. Uh, uh, and then there's one other um, aspect, but they're basically, so these are things that take their toll on us as, as professionals and as people, and it, it is detrimental to our sense of self to carry around this information and have to then make, constantly be making decisions based on what we're going to show and what we're not going to show oh. in addition to being, you know, great at our job or, you know, whatever we're trying to do professionally. And it's, you know, it, I feel like, you know, I'm aware of my gender and my sexual orientation and my color and my ethnicity. Um, every time I walk into a room, you know, I look around and I say, am I safe here? Am I the only one here? You know, how do I want to play it? Are other people noticing that? And are, am I going to be fairly judged? How do I... How do I need to somehow modify how I speak, you know, how I come across so that I have a chance of being heard? Yeah. And that's what's going through everyone's minds all the time. Oh. And that's a lot of effort. It's exhausting. I mean, it I is. just feel like as a woman, and I know, like, I'm in a place of privilege as a white woman, but I can just imagine, mm-hmm. you know, add, you know, lesbian, add woman of color onto that, add single mom onto that. Jeez, they, they get, Jeez. you know, moms know. in general get. But I, I feel like, you know, I've been doing this covering my whole life, it feels like, you know. I yeah, we learn how to do it. Yeah, you know, when when yeah. you're in a different industry, that's, you know, uh-huh. you're, you're pretending. Like, I think there was a one point where I fe- and I know other women feel this way, where I just didn't even want to talk about the fact that I was a woman. Like, let's oh, pretend yeah. it's not happening. <laughs> you know? uh-huh. Yes, there's denial and, and yeah. a distancing. And that is exactly what I'm talking about. I mean, I still meet a lot of women, young women too, who say, I don't, I don't want to be judged or I don't want to join the women's network. I don't want to be active in my company's activities because I, I don't want to be known for my gender. I don't want to be known as too strident. Yeah. And, you know, that breaks my heart because I know, just like we've seen with our political system, I know that company cultures can slide back as well. You know, every culture can slide back. And we never thought this could happen in our country. Um, and I, it just to me means that if, the, if your freedoms are important to you, now is the time to stand up. And if you have your freedoms, never, ever take them for granted. You know, if you've got that white privilege, how are you using it? And I I do think that's a positive outcome of what's happened on the national stage is 
so many more people know they've got to do something, whereas before I think they might have been passive and kind of riding the wave of change, assuming they knew where that wave would be going. And now we're riding a very different wave. So, uh, yeah, call to action. Well, how is this affecting the millennials? You talk a lot about the millennials in your book, and I'm just curious, like, as a group. um, Mm. Yeah, they're they're an interesting generation. Uh, I think what I get concerned about with millennials is they probably took the election results really, really hard because I think more than us, for example, they – they probably, in their innocence, they probably believed perhaps that this was going to go a certain way based on, you know, the fact that they believe diversity and inclusion is sort of baked into who we are, you know, sort of baked into society. It's something that we can count on being valued. And so it was a slap in the face, I'm sure. And uh, it's a rude awakening. And I, before, when I wrote the book, it was before the election and before I really understood the depth of the, the divide in our country. But I did say there were some interesting gaps, for example, between millennial men and millennial women on their perceptions of opportunities for women. Millennial men said there are a lot more opportunities for women and more, more fair treatment and that it was sort of a wide open playing field in the same way as it was for them. But women didn't answer that question in the same way. So there's already a disconnect between how they, how the two genders, even at that age, understand the tax. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that concerned me because I, I would hope that millennial men grew up with these career women as mothers. You know, they grew up in a time when they believed in equal opportunity. And now that's really going to be tested. And if they are truly a different breed of man, I, I am looking to that generation to really lead as men because we are going to need to involve men at all ages in a very different way than I think we have in the past. And that's why, you know, I get especially jazzed about speaking to, you know, and this still happens, you know, mostly male audiences. I get, I get really excited to speak to them yeah. because I think that we must activate them. We must figure out how to talk about the challenge in front of us in a different way that, that fires them up and gets them to step forward and actually put their skin in the game on others' behalf yeah. and hold each other accountable, by the way, you know, because men speak to men in a very different way, and I think they carry weight in a different way with each other. Yeah, and, you know, it's interesting to me because there's so much optimism in terms of the inclusion conversation in the millennial generation, but I've talked to several women when they actually start working, they're like scratching their heads going, wait a minute, this isn't like how me and my friends are hanging out. Like I come yeah. into this culture and like, I can't believe this is actually happening. You know, right. I talked to a young woman, she was 23, it was her first job, she had a, She was dealing with sexual harassment, I and mean, she's gorgeous, and, oh. you know, regardless, she was just shocked, mm. and I was like, why, I was shocked, I was like, really, is that, like, <laughs> still, happening? still happening, you know, <laughs> Yeah, like it's it's crazy. So it um, is crazy, and they're gonna they're gonna leave. I mean, you and I know the statistics. Their their churn through jobs and through even careers and companies is going to be much faster. There's many more that are going to become entrepreneurs. They're gonna they're gonna leave the big company environment if if we don't do that well, and and that's going to be a huge like brain drain from some of the biggest brands in the world. You know that really depend on this talent and. They don't do it well, and I'm I'm trying to get through to them about, you know, that their their processes, their structures, their org charts, their layers of bureaucracy, their you know, you know, trumpeting the bottom line. You know, none of these things are going to matter to that young talent who want to be valued. They want to be included. They want to be part of something. Uh, They want to resonate with the values of their company. They want to be really enthusiastic and bought into the work of the company. And right now there's just the system is not set up to really resonate with them at all. Yeah. Well, now where do we go from here? What does the workplace of the future look like? And again, I like to link this back to make sure that like the entrepreneurs in our audience and the people who are in many different 
areas, maybe not necessarily in corporate culture, how this applies, but for now we can start like what, yeah, I'm curious, how can we like stop the madness and actually create a work environment that's good? I know it's time. We're still, you know, people who study organizational structure and, and design say that we're still really our management structures are from like decades ago. You really have yeah. not innovated in that space. So, um, but I, I like to think entrepreneurs are trying all sorts of new things. You know, I know the way I run my company is we're, we're a lot of contractors and yet we are, uh, we're all virtual, but we're, we're a real tight team and we, we work in ways that make sense for us. We, we achieve the balance we want, you know, and that's freedom that I give everyone that works with me and for me. Um, and I'm really committed to them feeling they actually are choosing to be here and work on what we're working on every day. Um, so there's a, there's a ton of autonomy I give people. There's a lot of flexibility to dial up, dial down. Um, that, that was so important to me, and it's what I didn't get in these more rigid, large uh, company structures. Right, so but, but I think, the problem is when you have, you know, a thousand people or 400 people or even 80 people, mm-hmm. it's harder to, uh, yes, it is. you need to have people come into the office. You can't just be like, yeah, you know, I mean, yeah, I you know, can have some people virtual, but it's not like everybody can be virtual or, you know, I think productivity would go way down. If I, yeah. I don't know with that many employees, I just don't know if that's even possible. Well, it's interesting, you know, I'll tell you, so there, we have the story of, you know, Yahoo, Marissa and I are calling everyone back, right? And, you know, that was in the news a couple of years ago when she took over as CEO. Right. Um, they had sort of lost, well, in her view, they had lost control over who was doing what where, you know, and it was a way she was criticized for it, I think, heavily by those of us who are really passionate about balance and flex. But I understood what she was doing, that she needed to re-centralize everyone physically in order to understand what she was working with and, you know, to get your hands around that. But I'll tell you, though, other companies have heavily virtualized their workforce. Like Cisco's workforce, they can work from anywhere in the world. And when I've been working with them for 10 years, and they have gone from to fewer and fewer and fewer office buildings as I've been working with them <laughs> to the point where their footprint is, like, tiny. And so, actually, I, I think the tricky part, maybe what you're talking about, is the companies that are between that, like, 400 and a couple thousand people. Yeah. I think I agree with you that, that it's almost like you, you can do this with the big companies because there's so much infrastructure to support that and support working virtually, and, and there's processes in place, et cetera. But perhaps when you're on a high growth trajectory and you're still relatively small and new, you know, can you effectively run companies, you know, largely virtually with that many people? And I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not there <laughs> with my company, but I do, but I do think it's a blend and, and I, I don't know, we're making things up. We're using Slack. We're using other channels. Um, you know, we're getting really good at, working virtually and in many ways productivity you know skyrockets when we don't have commute time you know when we can orient our work hours around when we when we need to around our families every single entrepreneur I know works so many hours you know when they're working from home and they're and corporate America is totally getting this I just think that they're not able to do it fast enough because they are they have antiquated systems and they can't equip people with the right technology but I do think that that is a direction that things are, are going in all right, yeah. so check that. We, I, yeah. I'm all for that. Um, <laughs> what else? We, we, you know, I've I've heard of, uh, you know, progressive maternity leave, paternity leave. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. that's all good. But these things are like just kind of benefits. Like, what does the workplace of the future, to quote from your one of the chapter headings of your book, mm-hmm. look mm-hmm. like? I mean, I feel like it's it's even more drastic than that. Yeah, I think honestly, it's a dismantling of the. It, it's a dismantling of the hierarchy. You know, the vertical right. hierarchy, and it's it's looking at things like holacracy and the experiment that Zappos is doing. Um, they've implemented holacracy, and it's been written about in the news, and and you can read a lot about more holacracy. Like it's a great experiment, but basically they got rid of all their org structure. Uh, they created self-forming teams. They got rid of job descriptions. 
And it's an exper- true experiment, especially because Zappos is so well-regarded, right, as a customer-focused yeah. brand. And um, Tony's a really, the CEO is, is really thinking outside the box, and I, I hand it to him because, you know, that, that would be alarming for a lot of people. And I think the big question mark is, it, it, can all of us flourish? Are, are we the kinds of employees and people that would flourish in a completely unstructured environment. Um, I don't know that that's going to be um, a, a good fit for a majority of people. So, um, but, but it is, it is sort of that if you want to know what the cutting edge is of the conversation, it is flattening the organization. It's dispensing with um, hierarchy, um, you know, allowing sort of self-defined job descriptions. It is um, flexible teams. So like swarming teams that kind of form and dissipate depending on like where the challenges are, where they want to go, where they, you know, have energy and passion. So, I mean, that sounds like anarchy to most people in um, corporate. So I think we're not certainly not there, you know, for the American Expresses of the world. But I do think that that um, this whole like even you see with performance management, remember, you know, performance management used to be something we did every year. You know, you would wait until you had that big conversation once a year. And even those processes are being dismantled, ranking your employees. A lot of companies have thrown that out as a management orthodoxy. They don't like it. They know it's bad for teaming and, co- and collaboration and trust. So they're getting rid of that. They're getting rid of performance reviews. So there's a lot of things that are are changing and being revisited because they just know that it doesn't work and it's not, it's just not responsive and flexible mm-hmm. enough for the world, the dynamic world that we live in today. Yeah. It just doesn't work anymore. You know, you, you can't be innovative if you have to wait endlessly to understand how you're doing or to get approvals for things. Like it's too late right. in business. So well, one of the things that I, in, encouraging people to self-identify with their groups but also feel connected to a whole is that I'm seeing and again this is like I just know one company that's being aggressive in this but holding a space within a corporation to discuss issues that are actually happening out in the world which Uh I don't think anybody's really doing like this Uh all of the the pulse, for instance, that's when I really heard of it. Like, is there a place in the corporation to discuss issues of race and issues of violence and issue or political issues that, that affect humanity? Or is that something that doesn't belong in the corporation? Because it's certainly a hot topic. It is. It is. So after the election, even way before the election, you know, I do a lot of work with what we call affinity groups. And they are numerous in Fortune 1000 companies. There's many of them of all kinds, you know, race, gender, sexual orientation. I mean, they've been a lifesaver for so many employees um, in companies. I've even seen them flourish in companies as small as four or 500 or 600 people, all the way up to, you know, the IBMs and the Accentures of the world. So these communities have, in some cases, like in Cisco's case, they have, you know, thousands and thousands of women in their women's network, and they're all over the world. There's chapters. It's like a little a city unto itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're fully funded, and they're going after issues that are important, for example, to, uh, to female employees and female customers, too. So they're literally, like, grappling with the marketplace changing and saying, boy, there's, there's more, way more female CTOs that are buying our products. Like, let's connect let's connect with them and sell more to them. Like let's use our internal female talent to really leverage and build those relationships to impact the bottom line. So it's really, um, it's, and it's exciting. So that is continuing. And, but I think where they stop though is the political conversation I think you're talking about. So while they are, they are really impacting community, their philanthropy, they're impacting women inside the organization because they're giving them um, confidence and a community and um, connections with executives. Um, They're impacting the marketplace and sales for their company. But I think this election particularly kind of put a whole different big elephant in the room, you know, for companies to figure out, you know, are we going to say something? You know, is do we need to respond? Are employees so upset right now that yeah. we need to jump in and say, look, you matter to us and you are safe. When you yeah. are here working with us, you have our commitment. And some CEOs did that um, in the weeks following the election. Many did not and remained silent. Yeah. 
Um, and I was actually watching that very carefully. Um, and I've actually been asked to script some of those responses um, on behalf of like, the Corpse Comms teams that give the CEO their talking points. Now, would I like a world where a CEO just organically says, we need to say something? We really need to address this um, to, to assure people that our commitment will continue. Um, so there were um, a lot of uh, CEOs that I really admire did, did in fact do that. And whether that was publicly done and it was available or whether it was just to employees and it got leaked, <laughs> uh, yeah. there were a lot of these things going back and forth. So yeah. I think... Companies are going to be asked, especially by millennials, to step forward and take a stand on socio-political and economic dynamics and yeah. issues of fairness and issues that you raise. Um, and if they don't, I think they're going to be accused of being tone deaf to, you know, the world that we're living in and really the huge role that, you know, companies can throw their weight around and create massive change. I mean, look at the boycotts in North Carolina related to the transgender bathroom ridiculousness that's going on down there. I mean, it has cost them like many hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue as a state. Yeah. And many companies were the ones that were leading that conversation because they know that that's not good for business. You know, as you do by one community, that is read across the board as how you will do by other communities. And yeah. that's, that's the leverage that we have. You know, whether it's what you do with, you know, immigrants, it's what you do with religious minorities, it's what you do with, um, you know, women and people of color and people with disabilities. You know, everyone is watching what companies are doing these days. And that's actually really good news for those of us that are know that there are you know many thousands of employees that can be mobilized in order to make sure yeah. their company is on the right side of history, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's interesting with the political, like in general, I don't like politics. I, you know, I think that that should be private. But this election brought out something else. And that's why I kind of said when there's an affront to humanity, like, yeah. I feel like it's appropriate. Like, if we're just talking about, like, you know, economics and, you know, mm-hmm. you know, but, but we've, you know, the affront to humanity, I think that there's, um, and all, all the affinity groups that you talked about, and uh, it feels like there's a place and a role for the corporation to play that mm. is significant, not only in terms of, like, the workspace, but also in terms of affecting change outside of that. So I'm glad to hear that, I these, agree. that there are lots of corporations that are getting involved in that. That's, and I just want to say, Chantal, one more thing. Um, I think there have been opportunities before the election for companies to take a stand, right? But I think oh, yeah. they're still kind of warming up their engines, right? You think about Black Lives Matter, you know, and and all of the things that companies could have come out and said, this is wrong. And, and how meaningful that would have been for employees of color to hear, you know, when they, when they came to work you know, after Ferguson and other incidents, they were not bringing their full self to work. And, and many others were not bringing our full selves to work because of what had happened outside of the four walls of the company. And everyone was distracted and everyone was upset and everyone was feeling that the hurt. And so I don't think companies can, can and they, they never really could, but you cannot count on that, that um, when people come into the workplace, they're going to leave all that behind. It's just not realistic. And, you know, the pulse shooting for the LGBT community, you know, Disney being in Orlando, you know, they, they, they sort of like stopped the presses. I mean, they, everything ground to a halt and they, they kind of mobilized and, you know, it was incredible to see that and it made the employees feel so valued and so well represented by the company that, you know, pays their paycheck every two weeks. So I think that what, what's going to be interesting is to see, you know, which issues feel safe relatively for companies to make a statement about and to notice where they haven't been comfortable saying anything in the past. Right. And I think there's some, I think there's some subtle uh, privilege going on with that. And maybe, you know, some, dare I say the word, you know, racism because, you know, people say, Oh, it's a slippery slope. If we comment on this issue, then we have to comment on that issue. And yes, I understand that, but let's, let's comment on all of them, you know, because our workforce is, is multicultural, you know, and, and if we know that large percentages of, of our workforce, because of what's happening in the news are coming into work and feel so compromised that they cannot focus, they're not productive. They are, 
you know, uncertain. They are, um, you know, not feeling that they want to be there. You know, that's a huge impact on the bottom line. And I think that's what I talk to leadership about. I say, you know, this is the, this is an opportunity for you to think about employee engagement in a very different way. It's not just in a textbook. It is happening right in front of you. Right. So let's, let's get back to that. So a couple of, in terms of employee engagement, and there's one thing for like the CEO to make a statement, which is powerful and inspiring. And the people that do that, I applaud them. And, you know, Emerging Women wants to get behind all those companies. Oh, but, yeah. <laughs> but that's not the end of the story. These people are still coming to work and they're like, okay, well, like, I need to process. I'm here for the next nine hours or eight hours, 10 hours. And, you know, is, should there be more of a container created where Mm -hmm. some of these Mm -hmm. issues are talked about. Now you mentioned affinity groups and on Mm -hmm. one hand, like, you know, I'm obviously we are, we're a women's organization. So (laughs) we're into affinity groups, but you know, and we're also into connected leadership too and inclusive leadership. So that's a delicate balance too. Like, you know, having the affinity groups and how are they all connecting together? So we're having a conversation across those groups. Is Mm -hmm. that, actually mm-hmm. happening in terms of programming or what are you seeing mm-hmm. out there? Yeah, it needs to happen more. I mean, before the election, again, we were always saying in our consulting work, um, you need to come together with one voice because uh, we need to we need to be inclusive. You know, those diverse communities, it's no good to do our work in silos. You know, we need to do that and we need to come together and have one conversation about what we share because it makes us stronger to discover the commonalities between our struggles because that's how we're going to speak with one voice and influence the system, which is really, and influence our futures, basically. Because when we improve the system, it is better for us and it's better for generations after us. So, um, but they don't, you know, business being business, people kind of do their work in silos and it's not, you know, it's, it's not intentional. It's just the way it happens. So we were always trying to say, let's come together and jointly plan. Let's make statements. You know, after the election, I, I would have thought a lot of these groups would come together and in the absence maybe of the CEO making a comment, you know, the, the, all of the leadership of the groups can say, you know, here, we're diverse talent in this company and here's what we think about what occurred and here's our message of hope and our message of reassurance and here's tools and support for you. Um, and, and, you know, I think people were so, they were grieving to such an extent I think it just took us so much by surprise that I'm not sure people have kind of woken up out of that and, and mobilized into the new year to say, how are we going to do this differently? Because there are, there are not new issues on the table, but new issues have been surfaced. And, and, you know, I think it's, there's going to be some rough water. I mean, the women's March in DC, I've been reading, there's a lot of tension uh, between white women and women of color um, amongst kind of who's organizing the march because there's some work that needs to be, there's some healing work that needs to be done and some new language that we need to find to speak to each other and to be inclusive of each other uh, before we kind of take it out more broadly. So there, there are some intersectional challenges, I'd say, even within our, those affinities that we, we've never really done well you know, to this point. And I think, you know, the LGBT community, the advocacy community for LGBT that the, at the high levels are all white and male, you know, so there's a lot of diversity issues even within that community. Oh, and each, yeah. each community has a yeah. similar challenge. So I know it can be overwhelming, but I, I think it's, this is a great, again, great call to action to get our house in order, to come together, to broaden the conversation and to tell our companies, look, we need a space to process this. And I think now our companies and whoever our employer is, I think, uh, will be on board with that because I think the whole system has sort of been rocked by, um, yeah. 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 I love that, though. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take your idea and continue to promote that because it's... Um, <laughs> well, I mean, yep. you know, it's one thing to make a statement. It's another thing, like, you know, it's still going on and I'm still going to work mm-hmm. and I, you know... Um, anyway, I think we've covered it and I'm, I'm just so interested to hear, and I'm, I know you and I are in touch, like, you know, what companies are doing really progressive things and I'm seeing some great 
tech companies that uh-huh. are just going after this and it's so inspiring and some other companies as well but I you know have just for emerging women has had some more ties in the tech world so I get exposed to that and it's it's inspiring because there are so few marginal you know minority <laughs> diverse populations and yet they seem to be pretty progress a, a lot of the ones that that we come across are really earnestly mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. trying to turn it around. And I just find that so inspiring. So They um, are. They yeah. are. And I think my book will give them well-meaning and well-intentioned people who want to really activate and have maybe be sit- been sitting on the sidelines. Yeah. They should totally read the book because I, I feel like I wrote, I wrote it for that, those people before even knowing how desperately we would need right. more people to jump into this conversation. Um, you know, now I really know it, you know, but I yeah. sensed it in my bones before the election and um, that, that there's so many people that are not able to bring their full potential um, yeah. and, and know the joy of working in, you know, in a comfortable place, in a place where you're valued yeah. and it hurts women and it hurts other folks that are not represented. And it's just, it's a tremendous tragedy. And, you know, I don't want that to be, I don't want it to continue. So, you know, but we need to, we need yeah. to step forward and change it. Well, may we both be out of a job in, I don't know, five years. I mean, the way things work right now, that's so exponentially fast, that might be a little <laughs> hopeful, but yeah, yeah. may the conversation be a moot point, you know, very soon. Yeah, I'm looking forward oh, to I that. hope so. And with <laughs> yeah. your work, you you're you're doing such good stuff too. Talking about feminine leadership and a different paradigm, and and that's like that is a big part of the equation is stepping out of the male models and continuing to make a space for us, you know, to lead and build different kinds of companies where this is a priority for us. Yeah. And I honestly think the men are following. I mean, there's a lot of men that are doing incredible inclusion work. Yeah. Um, that are just so inspiring, and I know they know that it's. It feels good. It's the right thing. It's good for business. It's all of it. So I think we're on to something. We are. (laughs) We are, Jennifer Brown. Yes! Thank you so much, lady. I love the book. It's gorgeous. I wish you the best of luck. And and I'm just so happy to be connected, and I'm looking forward to more juicy conversations. Oh, me too, Chantal. Thanks for being you. Okay, thank you. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye-bye.